Hello, and welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks, the opioid edition. I'm Tracy McCrae, and this is the first of two bonus episodes on the opioid crisis. This podcast is brought to you by the Opioid Conference, held each year as part of Mayo Clinic's continuing medical education. For more information on all opioid episodes available for credit, visit ce.mayo.edu slash opioidpc. Today we are showcasing Dr. Helena Gazelka, an anesthesiologist boarded in pain and palliative medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. She'll be sharing best practices for opioid monitoring and considerations for tapering. So we're going to talk about uh, opioid monitoring and then outline a monitoring program that's feasible for daily practice, but mostly we're going to talk about critical factors related to initiating an opioid taper. So I think the most important thing, and of course this has been drilled into us all by now, is that safety first. By now you've fairly been beat with the CDC guidelines uh, for prescribing opioids, and I hope that you've had a chance to look at them. I always say that the most important part is on page, I think it's page 16, where they have one box that outlines the 12 tenets of this uh, guideline and it's a very readable and so it's worth being familiar with. We like to use in our clinic this careful model for opioid monitoring. It's simple, easy to follow and it kind of reminds you to do some of the key things. We talk about controlled substance agreements, assessing the risk of addiction, monitoring, functional assessment, urine drug screening, and longitudinal follow-up of course. So the most important things I wanted to tell you about the controlled substance agreement, really it's just two things. It's what are your patient's responsibilities toward their uh, opioid program and what are your responsibilities? Most importantly, I think, is your responsibility to obtain consent for the patient before they take opioids. Just as I wouldn't do an interventional procedure on a patient without discussing with them the risks uh, inherent to that procedure, these medications are risky medications and patients uh, need to be fully informed before they engage in that therapy. Lots of examples of CSAs as we talked about. Addiction risk. So there's lots of ways to assess addiction risk other than just asking the, the questions yourself. But the, the first on this are really used a lot for research and they're good, excellent tools. The opioid risk tool is a very simple five question screening tool. But really what's important is that you follow up on it and you look at it and you use it for something. So I really think that a lot of these screening tools that we recommend are best when you actually take time to review them and when you actually discuss the results with the patient and then uh, put some of that in your narrative, in your notes and document it as well. Prescription monitoring databases. Well, I have learned more than I wanna know about prescription monitoring databases in the last um, year and a half while I've been working on behalf of Mayo on our opioid uh, stewardship. But you know by now that 49 states have uh, prescription drug monitoring uh, programs. The Minnesota program we have access to, I think it's 21 or 23 states now. You have to be enrolled now, this is the law, as of this summer that to, to prescribe opioids in Minnesota, you need to be enrolled. You don't have to check it. Nobody's checking up on this. And if you have complaints to the state medical board, this is one of the first things they ask you. And then you want to document when you search that database. You know, I think that there are some really inherent flaws with um, these databases. I had always assumed that when I gave a patient a prescription for opioids and they went into a pharmacy and they filled that prescription, that immediately was logged into some big computer somewhere. And if I looked in the next 15 minutes or the next two days, there it would be. There are weeks lag on a lot of these databases and all the states control their databases differently. So the state of Wisconsin, they monitor, they manage their own data and they put it into their own database. 
In Minnesota and 41 other states, there's a private company called APRIS that um, controls the data and feeds it into these monitoring programs, and they actually house the data. And so they are working, they're interested in states sharing data because that's, that's good for their company as well as good for us in sharing information. But I think the answer would be a national database where we had more rapid access and where uh, there was more sharing than just um, what's arranged by a company. So you want to document every time the database is searched, as I said. So functional assessment. This is really important. A narrative description is important. So the PEG is a short little three-question screening tool, and that's great and it's wonderful to document that and put it in, and put it in the chart but really you want to know that patients are improving because they're on opioids they need to be doing more after you put them on them than they were doing before you put them on them and we'll talk about that again in a few minutes but don't forget side effects this is a really important part of um, informed consent, talking to patients about what might happen when they take these medications, drowsiness and how it might affect their job. Should they be going back to work? You have to discuss that with them. Should they be driving their car home? Constipation. You know, one of our mentors when I was going through fellowship loved to say the hand that writes the opioids should also write for the laxatives. And um, that's very true. So I always write down my combination of Senecades and Miralax and titrate to effect uh, on a piece of paper for them. Hypogonadism. Now this is a topic that I don't know if enough people talk to their patients about before they put them on opioids, but it certainly is an issue for patients who are chronically on opioids. In men in particular, you should be checking testosterone levels if patients are chronically on opioids. And I have to say that I have used this little talk um, on more than one occasion to discourage young men from chronic opioid use and tell them, you know, there are concerns if you go on these, you know, with your libido, with sexual function, muscle mass, et cetera, et cetera. And those are real issues. For men, I mean, you can give them some testosterone if they're a patient who really needs to be maintained on opioids, but the, the issues for women are a little more difficult to treat and a little more complex and may need the assistance of an endocrinologist. So longitudinal follow-up. I think this is a key to the opioid uh, program. You need to see the patient. So in some clinics, you know, even at Mayo, when we, we were looking at this, we're seeing the patients once a year and sending refills in between. And I think not assessing a patient's functional status and how they're doing in the course of a year is really, really too long. And so the CDC guidelines would say there should be some kind of follow-up every three months. Ideally, a provider, that's great. But I also think we've bandied about all kinds of ideas for the nurses to have follow-up visits in the clinic with a scripted sheet to go through to talk to the patients, but they should be face-to-face -face if at all possible. We've also talked about involving our pharmacists in that. And in our clinic, we have a small opioid population in our clinic, believe it or not, for a very large pain clinic. All of the patients are on the same schedule. So they come back for their refills at the same time. We have an opioid clinic and it's staffed certain times every month. Now that's not possible in very large clinics. In our primary care clinic at Mayo, there are thousands of patients on opioids. And when I broached this topic with them, they said, you have to be kidding. There is no way to put all these patients on the same schedule. And how would we possibly get through those patient visits? So that can work nicely if you don't have a big panel of patients on opioids. But follow-up is really the framework upon which you're going to base all the rest of your program. If they don't follow up, they don't get a prescription, and that's uh, very important. So talking about the risk benefits and alternatives, once more we're going to hit on this. What else could we be doing if we weren't going to prescribe opioids? And is this approach really working? So it's worth revisiting, and you should talk a, or at least consider 
is this the right time to taper or discontinue opioids for this patient every time you see them? We have decided that our male providers should renew controlled substance agreements once a year. There's no, you know, data in the literature about this. There's no law about this. But the primary care providers who've been part of working with me on this opioid said, you know, we need a reminder at least once a year that we need to go again over the risk benefits and alternatives and that we need to consider this patient's been on opioids for a year, another year. Is this what I want to continue for this patient? Is this reasonable to continue? And so really, um, I think at least every year or about every year is probably a good interval to be considering and discussing these again with patients because patients don't remember all the risks you told them a year later. The most important part of an opioid monitoring program is seeing the patient in follow-up. It's going to tell you a lot more about what's going on with them probably than urine drug screening. The one comment I wanted to make about urine drug testing is we see our patients every three months in the clinic. There's no random urine drug testing. The patients know they're coming back for a three-month follow-up, and they know that they're going to have a urine performed while they're there. And so while urine drug screening is important and it really is necessary, I think, to document and to have in, in, your, in your records because it really is a requirement of appropriate follow-up, there are limitations to it, of course. So monitoring program, this really, if you can put patients on a schedule and assess every three months their function, addiction, do a urine drug screen, get their renewals teed up, then the RN or your nursing staff or whoever is helping you with your, with your opioids can review the medical record with you in between. If you are interested in learning more about this topic, Dr. Helena Gazelka is one of the course directors for the annual Mayo Clinic Opioid Conference. Mayo Clinic offers hundreds of continuing medical education conferences worldwide. Visit ce.mayo.edu and register today for the Mayo Clinic Opioid Conference. We're going to switch gears now and talk about when you do want to get patients off of opioids. As I said, I think this is something you should consider every time you see the patient. This, is, this therapy, like every other therapy, is a therapy that can fail. So I have a lot of patients who I'll send home with some gabapentin and they'll come back in four weeks or they'll call the nurse in two weeks and they'll be like, I'm not taking that anymore. Well, what's the, what's the problem? Well, I felt tired on that. I feel like I can't think. I feel, well, what dose are you on? And maybe we need to back the dose up a little. Maybe we, nope, I'm done with that. Not always the case with opioids. And then you want to discuss and document the reasons that you're going to continue them. If you're going to continue them, there need to be a good reason for it and um, discuss the lack of other successful therapies and why you chose this therapy. So why might we want to taper our parent patients off of opioids? Well, as I said, failure of therapy. I always discuss this with the residents and fellows, and they're kind of like, huh, that's an interesting way to look at it. But really, this therapy can fail just like everything else, any other therapy. If I do an SI joint injection three times in a row and the patient's never had a benefit from an SI joint injection, what the heck am I doing the SI joint injection for? If they are home on their opioids, but they're not going to work, they're not moving around their house, they're not functioning any better than they were previously, then why, why opioids? Uh, if they have adverse effects, obviously, that might be a reason to discontinue. Constipation is a big one for patients or just feeling, you know, drugged up. Non-medically indicated reasons for opioids. So sometimes these are patients you inherit, that they were at another provider, they came to you. How in the world did you get on this in the first place for low back pain? Well, I ruptured a disc three years ago, and, you know, my doctor got me, on the, got me started on these. So after a surgery or an injury or short-term use, 
whether it's a legitimate reason or not, you need to consider that how long have they been on this anyway? The publication from the CDC earlier this year, they, they looked at the cases of 1.3 million patients through the insurance databases, and they showed that patients, the length of time that patients are on opioids after they take them acutely, so 10 days being the point where the scales really tip, and patients who are on them for 10 days or more have a very significantly increased risk of being on opioids chronically. Also, it matters how much you give them. So how many refills do they get in the meantime? Wow, it's three months later after you broke your wrist, and wow, when I look back, you've had six refills, not on a contract, because this was going to be an acute treatment for something. So remember to keep that in line. And then obviously concern for aberrant behavior, which we're going to talk about. But patients feel they have a right to have their pain controlled, and they do. We want to do the best for our patients. We want to use multimodal therapy. But I've told more than one patient in the hospital when they had a respiratory rate of 7, and I had to shake them to get them awake, and they had a pain of 13 out of 10, that I have yet to see someone die of pain, but I've certainly seen patients die of opioid overdose and respiratory depression. And so we have to first err on the side of caution. So aberrant drug-related behaviors. Well, my word, these are very obvious on the left side of the screen. You know, they're illicitly using drugs, and you know it from their toxicology screen. They're borrowing another patient's drug, and you know it. They keep losing their prescriptions. They're getting prescriptions from somewhere else. Sometimes patients will come in and say, oh, yeah, I got it from so-and-so. They thought I should try some of this. Really? Or they're forging prescriptions. Well, that's pretty obvious. Well, there's a lot of patients that are a lot more savvy than that. And their behavior, it feels wrong to you in some way, but, but you're just not sure sometimes. Patients who are using their drugs for another medical symptom that wasn't prescribed for, I increased it because I hurt my back this week, and so I needed to take more. They're aggressively requesting. So talking to your office staff is really informative. Patients know to behave when they see you in the clinic because you're the handwriting the prescription. But sometimes they're not very pleasant to the office staff, and that should be a real red flag. When they request specific drugs, they have in their allergy list everything except, you know, oxycodone or whatever. Acquiring drugs from other providers, obviously, are unauthorized dose escalation. Now, sometimes that happens that patients will be like, oh, I took an extra one and I felt so much better. Okay, well, we need to talk about that. But if patients continuously do that, that's a real red flag and unacceptable because obviously our most important concern is keeping our patients safe, and so we need to be cautious. The predictors of opioid overdose death, you've seen these before. They're changing a little bit, however, so it's middle-aged Males are the highest risk. People who have a history of substance use disorder other, or other psychiatric comorbidities are a huge risk factor. And then we also know that it matters how much opioid they're on. So if they're prescribed more than 100 oral morphine equivalents or equivalent dose daily, that's a significant risk. But prescription drug overdose is really increasing in the female populations. The death rates from 1999 to 2010 have really climbed with opioids in women, and so that's a, a significant concern. So there are really three ways to taper. It's not rocket science. You can tell them you're not getting another script. You can rapidly decrease someone, that's about 10% per day, or you can slowly decrease someone, about 10 to 20% per week. So a rule of thumb that I often tell the residents when I'm working with them is that there's not a lot of great evidence in the literature about this, but in my experience and in some of the articles that I've read, you know, others have found too that you can drop by 30 to 50% initially without patients going through withdrawal. So if you really need to get somebody off fast, you can typically do it. 
and they, they won't experience withdrawal symptoms typically. But first of all, I think most important is to educate the patient to have a frank discussion, and these can be very unpleasant, uh, why you're tapering them, and then what they can expect. What are withdrawal signs and symptoms? What are we gonna do about those, if anything? If you're not giving them more scripts, you know, or, or you're not wanting to prescribe clonidine or something else for withdrawal symptoms, then warning them about them and telling them that they are not life-threatening in their situation is, is good reassurance. Written and verbal instructions. So it's not uncommon when you want to taper someone whose behavior has been bad that, oh, they didn't understand. And so they call back to ask the nurses, can I have another prescription? Because, oh, no, no, I didn't drop the dose that day. I was supposed to drop the dose. But if you have it well written out, a calendar is perfect. How many pills are supposed to take that day, then it's easier for them not to err. And it is hard to remember, and so it's important to have things written. Also, at Mayo, we have an electronic medical record that the patients can access. And so I try to spell out very simply at the end of my note in terms that anyone could understand what the tapering plan is with the dates in it. And then you want to consider medical comorbidities. Do these need treatment too? Or do you need to taper more cautiously in patients with certain medical comorbidities? And that may be true. Uh, patients may need to have their anxiety treated uh, before, or their depression treated before you're going to be successful tapering them, and you may need assistance with that. So I usually choose to use the same opioid if possible. The patient's already familiar with that opioid. I think it feels odd to switch opioids to taper with. If I can taper with the same opioid, I will. But you may need a different formulation. So I often choose to, to taper. I usually get rid of the long-acting formulation first, so we can talk a little bit about that. And then I taper the short-acting agent next. But I have colleagues who do it the opposite way, where they keep the patient on the long-acting to try to keep things smoother than they are, get rid of the short-acting, and come down on the long-acting. The problem is, by the time you get to the end of that, you're almost surely going to need to switch them to a short-acting to be able to get rid of that long-acting agent. So it's hard to take a patient from a 12-mic fentanyl patch to nothing. It's hard to take a patient from a 10-milligram OxyContin twice a day to once a day to nothing. It's easier if you can use um, short-acting pills that you can divide even down to 2.5 milligrams or smaller. The last stage is almost always the most difficult, and you may have to adjust. And so this is why you're seeing the patient regularly in follow-up, because you want them to feel supported during this time, even if their behavior has been poor, or you're concerned, or, they, or the opioids aren't working for them, um, seeing them regularly in follow-up, because you may need to slow down your taper. It may be a difficult to tolerate. This is a 46-year-old guy at a crush injury three years ago. He wants to increase his pain medication every time you see him. His urine was positive for meth and benzos, as well as for his methadone and hydromorphone. What are you gonna do with this guy? Well, immediately you're gonna say, no, you can't have any more scripts from me because you're on methamphetamine, and you document why you're doing it with your urine drug screening results, your discussion with the patient. I have had patients in this situation where I've had to do this, and every time it has been unpleasant. Now, obviously, you're right. I mean, you do not want to be the hand that writes their opioid overdose that causes their respiratory depression and their death. Everyone would back you on this. Um, even reasonable patients would back you on this. But it's really unpleasant to have the conversation in the office when the patient sort of, you know, you got to do it, doc. I, you know, I need it and, you know, things like that or, or whatever. But documenting is really important. I had a patient who was sent to me by one of our oncology fellows. And he said, I don't know what to do with this guy. He told me he uses heroin, but he has terrible pain from his squamous cell cancer. Can you see him and help me just decide how to prescribe opioids to him? So he was giving him regular prescriptions for both long and short-acting oxycodone. 
man, he came in, and I had a just frank discussion with him. He said, yeah, he takes, usually takes his Oxycontin, often trades his Oxycodone with his girlfriend who's on a, who has a hydromorphone prescription for her low back pain. And so I got a urine drug test, and sure enough, there were heroin metabolites in his urine, which you almost never see because it's hard to catch patients with that. And so I... I I had the patient come back to have a discussion with me, and I called the oncology fellow in the meantime, and I said, we can't prescribe to this patient. This patient is treating his own pain, essentially. He's treating his own addiction, and we can't continue to prescribe for him, and I will be happy to have that discussion for you. It's never pleasant, but sometimes it has to happen. Mr. B, he's a 33-year-old. He has low back pain. He's been on since he ruptured his disc a few years ago. Uh, one of your, the members in your practice retired, so you inherited Mr. B. The office staff notes, he started calling, asking for extra medications or refills. He really is often very rude to the staff. He's threatening and demanding. He's been self-escalating his dose. He's running out early. What's happening to these? Oh, you know, they got stolen out of my car. I think somebody stole them. One of my buddies stole them. Is urine drug screens okay? only positive for the oxycodone that he's supposed to be taking. He's on oxycontin and oxycodone for breakthrough. He has a whole total of 120 milligrams of oxycodone a day. Well, what are you going to do with this guy? Well, I would say this is a guy that justifies being weaned off of opioids. Number one, unless there's better documentation, this gentleman doesn't necessarily fit my criteria for being on opioid therapy at the age of 33 with low back pain. Number two, he's on a pretty high dose, and that's over my comfort zone for a 33-year-old with low back pain. And his behavior, and it's escalating his dose, he's clearly violated his contract with me. So I would recommend weaning the patient while beginning to explore other options for his pain control. So I'm not going to dismiss the patient from my practice. I'm not going to have him get another provider. Now, he may try to get another provider because he'd prefer to stay on his opioids. Interestingly, at Mayo, in our primary care clinic, we don't allow this. So the patient is paneled with the provider they are paneled with, and that provider is responsible for opioids or no opioids. We do have a way for the providers to review their patients with us. We have a monthly meeting where we review difficult cases, and we put a note from our team in the patient's chart stating that this is what the team decided, that the patient is going to be tapered, this is how we're going to do it, or that the patient is going to continue on opioids, and this is how we're going to do it, because that provider retains that patient, but and the patient doesn't have the option of getting a new provider. But back to uh, Mr. B here. So I think you could discontinue his Oxycontin immediately. That's going to drop 40 milligrams per day, or a third of the dose that he's on. He's on 20 twice a day. And then I'd wean the oxycodone off rather rapidly because I've decided Mr. B has enough red flags that I don't want to prescribe him opioids long-term anymore. And so this is a suggested wean to wean him off over 10 days. I'd count out the number of pills. I'd give him exactly the number of pills he used to get, tell him that those are the only pills he will receive, and give him the written instructions on a calendar if possible how he's going to wean. So next is Mrs. P. This lovely 44-year-old lady has been in your clinic with fibromyalgia uh, for many years. Another colleague put her on opioids, but she's been started on duloxetine, really thinks that's doing well. She started on an exercise program. She's motivated to discontinue her opioids, and you guys have planned that. You've been trying, trialing medications, trying to get her other help, and she's very worried that she is addicted and she's going to go through withdrawal. Important point for Mrs. P is that uh, physiologic dependence is not the same as being addicted. So a lot of patients will think, if I have withdrawal symptoms, that must mean I'm an addict, because only an addict would have that happen to them. That would happen to anyone if we didn't wean their opioids appropriately. 
So her current therapy is a 100 microgram per hour fentanyl patch. She changes it every three days, and she takes her hydromorphone. It's pretty much scheduled. She takes it pretty religiously. So I would do a slow taper for Mrs. P, and I didn't write it all out, but this is how I would do it. I drop fentanyl by 25 micrograms about every fourth cycle. Maybe she'll manage for you to do it faster than that. So every she's changing her uh, fentanyl patch every three days. So by the fourth cycle, you'll wean it down again, and it'll take around 27 days to wean it out if I wean it off if I calculated that right. Then move on to her hydromorphone. So you've gotten rid of the long acting. You're going to leave her hydromorphone and start just dropping it slowly by two milligrams a week. Um, and then it, that will take about 42 days to wean off. And then you're going to see her and see how she's doing or have her call in because she's a patient who maybe can, you can do some phone uh, work with. And you may have to slow this wean at the end because sometimes the very smallest amount of opioid at the end is so very difficult. So in summary, opioid monitoring is less painful if you have a plan. You heard that from Dr. Sanders yesterday. I completely agree that it just takes so much pressure off of you and off of the patient if every single patient is treated the same way. You have a check sheet or your, your nurse has a check sheet and when you go in and you give the patient a prescription, they get their controlled substance agreement. They have the same management plan that every other patient in your practice would within reason. Now, there's patients who you're going to see more often because they can't go for three months because you're not sure about them yet. So you may not extend to those three-month visits right away. It may be every month, but with some adjustments. But really, for the urine drug testing and agreements, controlled substance agreements, and how the rules work, if you treat every patient the same, it really takes a lot of pressure off, and it makes those agonizing moments when you've got to go in and say, ugh, Something's wrong here. It makes them a lot easier. Consistently document and then have consistent expectations for the patient and for you of the patient and for the patient for you. And then the side, of, uh, the side effects of this therapy, these are risky medications we're talking about, and they have significant side effects. I mean, when I put someone on amitriptyline, I think twice about it, or three times maybe, or I've tried four other drugs first because I don't really like the side effects of amitriptyline, and a lot of my patients hate the side effects of amitriptyline. But it can be a useful medication. So it doesn't mean I'm not gonna use amitriptyline, but I'm gonna make sure they know the things that could happen. And I think that's very important here as well. So remember that tapering you need to consider uh, at every visit and discuss with the patient clear expectations of what you're looking for for the therapy and to continue it. These are valuable medications to a lot of patients and obviously very useful. So thank you very much for your time. Like Dr. Gazelka mentioned, our practice at Mayo has really been not to dismiss patients entirely from the practice if they're in violation of our agreement. When should we actually dismiss people, say we will not care for them, or is the both ethical, medical, legal responsibility to say, you know, actually we'll continue to care for you, but I can't prescribe pain medications for you any longer? And Dr. Gazelka, can you address that? We have dismissed more than one patient from our pain practice at Mayo for poor behavior. So if patients are in the lobby and they're threatening, if patients are threatening providers, if they do not manage themselves in a way that is appropriate, we have dismissed uh, patients, um, but we've gone through you know, the appropriate process to do that. But certainly there are patients that you can't care for because their behavior is obstructionist to their, to their care. What are our obligations when we're in this era of team-based care, having requests to refill medications for our, our partner's patients? And then kind of a corollary to that question, if we are leaving a practice, what's our responsibility for those chronic pain patients with whom we may have some sort of agreement? 
I think that depends on your practice. I, I think that's if you're almost any primary care practice has patients who are on opioids and many other practices as well. And I think you need to have an established plan within your practice for who covers when providers are, are out of office. I think that if the refill is according to the, the treatment plan that is established by the provider and seems reasonable that certainly you know, we're, we're obligated, to, that's why we're in group practices. Most of the time, we're obligated to take care of those patients. But if there are red flags, you know, some of the cases that may signal that that's not the right prescription to refill. When you leave a practice, I think you do are obligated to make certain that your colleagues uh, have assumed care for those patients, that there is a transition plan for them. Um, we've certainly seen practices where one provider has been a high opioid prescriber leaves and then the, the remaining partners are not aware that this was going on and they end up with all these patients on their lap and that's pretty unpleasant. So, but I think that's the essence of group practice. We had a couple questions from some of our hospitalist colleagues in the audience about kind of the um, intra-hospital management of acute on chronic pain. And one, one person specifically noted, you know, they looked up their patient on the PDMP, see they're getting both, you know, interval uh, prescriptions for opioids, both short and long term, but there's a new issue. Is it appropriate to prescribe a short-term course of a pain medication, or should they not do that? So there's, you know, the patient's in the hospital for an acute reason, there's new pain, but maybe there's aberrant behavior. They need to get the patient out of the hospital. Do you have any advice about how to handle that? There may be grounds for doing divided prescriptions for some patients who are, you don't feel are trustworthy with 10 days or two weeks of um, opioid. We do this in our palliative medicine clinic all the time for patients who have really significant medical issues or cancer. There are some behaviors that have not been the best or they have a history of abuse and we have concerns and so we'll give, we'll give the pharmacy, you know, they can have three days, they can have one fentanyl patch, and then so much short acting. And you can do the same thing when someone leaves the hospital. It's complicated and it takes a lot of time and it's gonna take some coordination with their home provider, but sometimes um, it's the erring on the path of safety. How do you manage patients who you are leading through a taper and then threaten or claim that they're going to either get medications off the street or buy it from Canada or get it from their brother. How do we best document that and, and handle that? Well, I certainly think it's important to document that. I don't think that because a patient threatens you that you are in any way obligated to provide them what they want. In fact, I would say that that would be reason. I've, I've had patients say, you know, they're going to commit suicide if they don't have, I'm going to kill myself if somebody won't give me these pain medications. I think documentation of that is important. I think an appropriate referral to psychiatry or uh, to, you know, the emergency room is appropriate if the patient is compliant. But I do not think that threats from patients are a reason to uh, provide them with medications. I would document it and continue on your taper uh, as you were typically. I mean, unless there's some extenuating circumstance why they need to be continued on medication. Could you provide some quick pearls or tips or resources that um, outline how best to safely wean benzos? I don't have a resource on the top of my head. I have seen articles written about this. Partly it depends how long they've been on them and how much they're on, of course. I mean, it, the, the typical thought with benzos is go slow and reduce them a little, little by little because um, these obviously are medications that are actually dangerous to wean. Um, but I would say that it's gonna take weeks. But you know, I, I've seen patients who are everywhere from 
one twice a day on their lorazepam to 10 milligrams a day on lorazepam, and I think they're very different patients who need very different weans. We've been talking about opioid monitoring and considerations for tapering with Dr. Helena Gazelka, an anesthesiologist boarded in pain and palliative medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Remember, if you enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks, please subscribe and share with a friend. Healthcare professionals looking to claim CME credit for Mayo Clinic Talks, the opioid edition, go to ce.mayo.edu slash opioid PC.